welcome to episode 42 of the Cood Street Podcast. It's the morning of 12th of March 2011. I'm Jonathan Strahan, and good morning, Gary Wolf. And this is Gary Wolf, listening to the most formal introduction to this podcast I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, what? you would think we knew what we were doing. <laughs> I, I thought I would really throw you off. I figured, you know, this is our 42nd podcast. We've been doing this for the best part of a year nearly. Surely we should be able to slick it up just a little bit. We but, can stick it up a little bit. If you start if you start plugging in that mouse disco intro music that other podcasts have, I'm out of here. Yeah, that kind of thing. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Hey, and we've got something we've got to do, Gary. We've got to send out a happy birthday greeting. Do you know who to? And who's this? Galactic Suburbia. Happy birthday to Tansy and Alex and to... Um, Elisa, because just this last weekend, they recorded this last week, they put out their first anniversary podcast. They've been on for a full year. Well, congratulations very much to them. Yeah. And we will we will never catch up to them. Well, not in years, but we've gone past in episodes because we were insane and didn't plan what we were doing, did we? No. Because there's actually a little point in their podcast, if you listen to it, Gary, where, where, where they giggle amongst themselves. I mean, in a very sort of mature feminist kind of a way. It was feminist giggling, so it's okay. Um, about the fact that we actually record every week. And the truth is, if you look back to the notes on episode one, it's like, oh, we don't know how long we're going to do this for or how often we'll do it, but we're just going to sort of do a podcast. Right. And we did a second one. And then because we did that a week apart, suddenly we were stuck. And we were doing it every week, which is fine. Well, I, th I think that's true. I think part of that also evolves from uh, the fact that we didn't plan this as a podcast. We were having weekly conversations anyway. Yeah. And at some point, uh, and, 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 and much as most of our listeners have figured out by now, most of much of what we talk about on these podcasts is what we would be talking about if there were no podcasts. Then it seems silly to just not record all of them. Pretty much. I mean, I don't, I don't know if when, when we finally get to sort of podcast 249, if we'll go, oh, my God, turn that thing off and leave me alone. <clears throat> or if we'll keep being happy doing it. We'll see what happens. I mean, the, the interesting thing about uh, uh, the, the field that we're in and not just uh, the science fiction and fantasy and horror field, but the whole world of publishing, media, writing and that sort of thing is always throwing up bizarre new things for us. Um, always, always. I have to say, you know, the new, what I thought, the, well, there's the, there's the actual news of the week, which is the sad news we were discussing a minute ago about the uh -huh. earthquake in Japan, which is a, a, just a terrifying and appalling thing, and your thoughts have to go out to everybody. Um, but I thought the, the genre news, the, the news that applies to our podcast probably, was George R.R. R. Martin finally falling over the line, having kept himself fit and healthy enough not to disappoint his, his readers and finishing A Dance with Dragons. Yes, that was uh, huge news to a lot of uh, fans. And I, I, I'm, I'm very curious to see where he's going now. I remember, um, I, 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 I'm not clear as to how George stumbled into this. I remember years and years ago being at a bookstore on the south side of Chicago when he was autographing books. He lived in Chicago then for a mm -hmm, while before mm -hmm. he went to Hollywood. Yeah. And his first book, Elijah, had just come out. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he was was nearly as um, distinguished, let's say, as he does now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he looked like one of these, well, 
he's he really should be in a royal portrait in uh in in, in you know the House of Commons or something. <laughs> um, but he he had, but he was he was a kind of young geeky science fiction guy like I am, the kind of guy you would see at conventions who had in this case his first book of short stories out. He'd won, I think, one Hugo Award at that point, but he was yep. at the very beginning of his career. Sure. And now he's George R. R. Martin. It, it makes you wonder, and if, again, if you've been around enough years, and you keep meeting all these young, ambitious writers, most of whom, frankly, um, you basically never hear from again. You might yeah, see them yeah, at conventions. Yeah, yeah. And then every once in a while, one of them will turn into a George R. R. Martin. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's always fascinating to me that you don't know how that happens uh, George has had one of the more interesting careers in our field. I mean, Definitely. He's one of the few people to be successful in television. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm very anxious to see what the adaptation on HBO looks like. I, 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 actually was, well, I was tweeting earlier this week, Gary, and was actually saying that. I, I confess that I read the first novel of Song of Ice and Fire, uh, Game of Thrones, and oh. liked it a great deal. I thought it was a terrific book. But I was just, I don't know, I was put off by reading more, you know, further volumes in it for the while. And when I see that uh, Dance with is supposed to be a thousand pages long, I know. I I find myself discouraged. I confess, and uh, I do turn to HBO's adaptation with some degree of eagerness. Um, I think it looks very promising as a piece of epic fantasy television. You know, I'm going to be very, very, very interested to see what it is. I think it comes out the weekend before SwanCon. Uh, um. It's like April the 15th or 17th or around that kind of time. So it's not far yeah. away at all. Uh, so I think it's gonna be, I think a lot of people have a lot of expectations riding on it now. And of course, as I was saying to a dedicated uh, Song of Ice and Fire fan yesterday, there is a benefit to the TV series tied up in it, which is that um, if the series is successful, they're going to do one series per year, one book per year. George has to mm-hmm. finish the other two within six years. He has to. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the whole TV series thing falls apart. So rather than taking five years to finish the shortcut to this book, the current book that he's done, he has to write faster. Um, I, I suspect he's trying. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I think so. The expectations too. go up every time out. Um, I have to confess also that I, uh, I didn't get... Um, I didn't get past a Game of Thrones, not that I didn't uh, want to, yeah. but as, as you know, there's a, there's a problem with having uh, any kind of professional reading obligations uh, where uh, you're thinking, okay, novels that run to multiple volumes and get up to a thousand pages, I really am looking forward to the time when I have the luxury to pick and choose that sort of thing, because sure, every sure. novel I read that I'm not going to review means it's one less thing in the column and then I'm backed up again. I've got to say, and this is sort of taking a dog leg, which I guess we do, uh, I was enjoying reading electronically this week for a reason not dissimilar to, or not disconnected to this. I started reading Joe Abercrombie's new book, The Heroes, which uh-huh. Paul Whitcover reviews for Locus in the upcoming issue and gives it a very positive review to. And it's a big, thick book, Gary. I mean, like it's it's like you would you, you would drop it on a small child, and the small child would be taken off to hospital. Uh-oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, if you hide a big, thick book in your Kindle, it doesn't look any bigger or thicker than any other book. And so you get rid of the psychological stigma for yourself, at least for me, of, oh, my God, I'm reading a thousand-page book. 
I have, um, well, it's interesting because the Kindle, I, I don't have whatever the new software is on the Kindle that's supposed to give you actual page numbers. Yeah, me either, yeah. Although somebody told me that it's not the page numbers aren't displayed on the page. You have to push the menu button or something to see. Uh, yeah. My problem with the Sony Reader where it, it gave you page numbers, but it gave you the pagination of the, the reader. Yeah, I know. Oh, oh, that was terrible. And that was maddening because a 250-page book came out as 1,800 pages or something. I know, I know. And every time you change the font size, it grew by 30% length. And exactly. You're sort of I mean, like, it, no. There was this sort of bizarre sense that, yeah, if I keep increasing the font size, I will never read the book because there will always be another 100 pages at the end. That's right. That's exactly right. So, so tell me, Gary. Given that we're sort of, but uh, as we, when we we're doing this, the setup for the podcast, the very brief this morning setup, we realized we mm -hmm. hadn't worked out anything to talk about. So I thought we might, I might find a way around a little bit, and I'd start with, what have you been reading lately? Um, that well, you talk about. Be, oh, this could be embarrassing to you. The, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading. Uh, well, I'm reading Eclipse for. One of the things I like to do, one of the reasons I like original anthologies in general, yeah. is that uh, depending on the state of mind I'm in, how exhausted I'm in or something, mm -hmm. I'm also reading China Miebel's Embassy Town, which I should finish in a, in a day or two. Yeah. Um, but there are times when I want to just read a short story, and, yeah. um, and, and I want to see what's new, and I want to see what the new Jeff Ford story is like, yeah. Yeah. and there it is. So I, I, I tend to go back and forth between those sorts of things, since I don't read the magazines anymore. Only something like Eclipse, Eclipse 4 gives me a chance to do that. Um, apart from that, I like Michael Swanwick's new novel. Sure. Uh, yeah. I'm liking uh, uh, China Miebel's Embassy Town, but I can't say anything about it until I finish it. Sure, of course. And uh, and, and there, there are some uh, other books that uh, I keep seeing, and this is one of the things that's also uh, a result of the electronic age. I saw a review of a um, book in the um, New York Times Book Review on Sunday, yeah, called Pym, and yes. it's a it's one of these sequels to it's not really a sequel, uh, well in a way it is yeah. to pose the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, yeah, uh, by an uh, African American writer who uh, I'm not familiar with, and I'm blanking on his name right now, and I thought well, I would like to look at this, and I'm sure this is one of the things that. Um, happens. Let me see. The guy is Matt Johnson, and he's yeah. published a couple of other novels. Uh, and it looks absolutely fascinating. This, uh, this, this uh, uh, English professor who's been denied tenure in his African-American studies department because he refuses to <laughs> attend the diversity <laughs> committee meetings. Uh, I like that. Get, gets together a band of, of, of sort of uh, misfits and decides he's going to go down to Antarctica and find the hidden world that was implied in, in Poe's narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Yeah. Uh, I went to the guy's website. He knows that Arthur Gordon Pym has had sequel after sequel. Some of the ones he mentioned I'd never yeah. heard of. Yeah. The most famous ones are Jules Verne's uh, Sphinx of the Ice Fields, which is not very good. Mm -hmm. And, of course, At the Mountains of Madness. Which is really quite good. Which is very good. Uh, so uh, so I, I, if I get to the point of um, having another novel to fit in, I might fit that in. I might fit in the, the new Kevin Brockmeyer novel. But one of the things about the Matt Johnson novel that occurred to me was interesting. Mm. Um, I'm almost certain that Locust did not receive an arc of that. I didn't no, ask you no. to realize. But, uh, and, and the reason is, clearly, this is marketable as, as a mainstream book. Sure. And I was looking at somebody's blog uh, last week, or maybe it was on Twitter, yeah. uh, about the small number, the still, well, the small uh, 
or writers of color, because not all of them are necessarily African-American. Mm -hmm. The current lord is Barbadian. And, and somebody was actually talking about, um, and this may be more noticeable among male writers um, than, than among women writers, because uh, you, know, you, you, you do have a high level of visibility of, 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 of Nalo and, and, and now Karen Lord, and, and some level of visibility is people like Stephen Barnes. What's happening to African-American fantastic literature is I think a lot of it's getting published in the mainstream and is just going right over the head of our genre-reading audience. Um, and I could name three examples sure. to mind immediately. One is going back about 20 years. Uh, I think it was actually a National Book Award winner called Middle Passage by Charles Johnson. Yeah. Which is a it's it's a, it's a slave sh it's a it's a narrative that takes place on a slave ship in 1839. Yeah. Uh, but they pick up this uh, ancient tribe in West Africa called the Almasari, which a tribe that believes they're older than the world, that they may have existed millions of years before the world existed. They have a god who is never described but drives mad anybody who looks at him. They have uh, a second brain. In other words, by all, by all uh, science fictional standards, these are aliens. Yeah. Um, they have hidden powers and they stage a ship's revolt. So there's all kinds of things interesting about that. Very, it's a philosophical novel. Never got covered in the fantasy literature at all. Uh, year before last, there was a writer named uh, Victor Laval who published mm -hmm. a novel called Big Machine, which yeah. is delightful. Yeah, It's one of these odd slipstream things. As far as I know, it got no attention among the likes of us at all. And now we've got Matt Johnson's Pym doing the same thing. So is it that maybe what's happened to some of the male African-American writers is just that they're marketed in the mainstream? It wouldn't surprise me if they're marketed to the mainstream, but I think there's probably... A variety of issues surrounding it. There will be things like this: the fact, you know, wh how well known the you know, genre imprints and genre publishing is at large. So that sort of the kind of sort of maybe the African American writers who are or people of color who are write, writing mm. genre related fiction, whether they're aware of those channels, um, the extent to which maybe well, I've got no idea if there's any merit in this. Uh, if you're from a non, uh, say 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 white background or whatever, uh, for want mm -hmm. of a better term, uh, you, you your work gets pushed to, towards being seen as like magic realism or something rather than genre. You know, like oh, we'll come up with another explanation for the fantastic non-realist elements in your story and publish it here. And then you also get something which is a, a, a affecting us for all sorts of different reasons, and that is the way the communication flow tends to go within the industry. I mean, uh -huh. you, you know, you go out, you work out, you know, you know communication streams to the people who, who you think are going to be interested in the books that you're producing, or we go out and we try and find people who are uh, producing them so we can review them. And whole areas can get missed out. I mean, right now we're, we're dealing with just a simple digitization of the process and all the complexities that that creates. But uh -huh. when you get any kind of special or niche area, it can get overlooked completely. And I, I could see that, first of all, you know, these sort of writers may well end up being directed to the mainstream because they're not as aware of the public of the genre publishing industry because there's another explanate way of publishing their work. Well, so, so it's yeah. a broader appeal, that kind of thing. I, I, I would never blame anybody if they can get, in this case, the novels published by Spiegel and Grau, which is one of the literary imprints of Random House. Yeah. Uh, that if you, if you can go in that direction and, and have a much greater chance of getting coverage in the New York Times and the mainstream media, 
I think most writers would choose to do that. Most agents would say you'd be nuts not to do this. Um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that any of these writers uh, are uh, basically turning their backs on genre or are even aware of genre. I mean, some mm-hmm. of them we know. Some, Juno Diaz, we know, loves science sure, fiction sure. Uh, because he talks about it. But in, in, in the other cases, I think most writers I know, if they had a chance to get marketed like that, would, would jump at the chance. I think what I'm talking about is not what the authors are choosing to do. It's what the publishers uh, are choosing what, to do. Well, or the publishers, but what, what we readers are, are choosing to do. There's still a sense of mistrust among people in this field to read anything that appears to be published outside of this field. Um, or or, or it's, it's, it's the inside-outside kind of thing again. But, but, remember, is that a, but is that a generational issue? Is it? I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm asking it, I guess, as a sort of a rhetorical question. Um, I would be curious if you were to go to say, even to a world con, right, and you were to mm-hmm. put this, you know, effectively say five questions, a short survey on this issue, to the um, membership of say a world con, and then you sorted it by age, would you get a different batch of in- answers? In fact, even if you went to the membership of SFWA who you'd think would have a very clear feeling on this sort of subject, because at the end of the day, most you know, readers really aren't aware of pu- imprints or publishers. Um, right. What would writers themselves say? And I think you may get a generationally different attitude. I'm not sure that the modern, younger reader, writer, publisher is as convinced about these genre bar- boundaries and barricades as older readers, writers, publishers are. I think that's true in, 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 in certain cases. I still, uh, I, I still get a sense, even among younger writers, that there is, um, at some point uh, in your career, you decide, am I going to uh, try to go in a Jonathan Lethem direction? Sure. Uh, am I going to try to go into a um, somebody who can, let's say, easily straddle both worlds, apparently, like a Karen Joy Fowler? Am I going to go in that direction? Or am I going to stay in my comfort zone with my genre friends that I see at conventions every couple of months? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I, 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 don't, I don't know the actual answer to this. I, I wish I did. Um, I, I don't know if there's a cultural predilection towards having writers you know, kept away from the genre. I don't, I don't know if there's a... I don't know. Part of the problem with my assessing this is it's not something I've ever felt very personally, you know, as a reader or person involved with the field anyway. I've never particularly felt this great um, ghettoization, which is so intrinsic to the history of the field. Uh, so it, it, it's always been hard for me to take it seriously in a modern concept. Well, I, I, I think you're right in the sense that I, I, I can't think of, um, I don't know if I can defend this for very long. I'm not sure I can think prevented from writing something that he or she wanted to write because of fear that it would be, would be published in the ghetto. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, uh, Fritz Leiber is one of the names who comes together, wrote absolutely brilliant stories, knowing that, uh, that he was never going to break out. Uh, yeah. Actually, his one attempt at a breakout novel, The Wanderer, was something of a flop. Yes. Um, so, so, so by and large, I, I, I think you're right. I don't think writers are necessarily uh, affected by it in terms of what they write or how they write it, although you do have this sort of recurrent uh, pattern with a lot of writers of wanting to write thrillers, of wanting to write mainstream disaster novels. I mean, one of the things that mm-hmm. uh, comes to mind when, when I was looking at the news about Japan today was Walter John Williams' The Rift. Yeah, yeah. 
which was supposed to be his big breakout disaster novel. It came at a time, it, and it, it turned out to be actually actually a very good novel for reasons that had not much to do with the disaster. Um, but everybody seems to want to do that. But that's a kind of commercial breaking out. It's it not is. a literary breaking out. Exactly. That's a completely different sort of thing. I mean, generally when you hear those things, what you when you hear, or when I've heard genre writers talk about writing breakout novels and all sort of thing, when I hear about them trying to write thrillers with varying degrees of success, generally it's commercially motivated, much as half the time, though not all, particularly these days, but most mm -hmm. of, quite often when uh, they talk about writing young adult. I mean, young adult is as big a, I want to earn more dollars kind of answer most of the times, as is I want to write a thriller or whatever, because there, you, know, the, you, you know an awful lot of, the, of genre writers, a lot of science fiction writers, tend to be stuck in the, the dreaded mid-list, and you're lo they're looking for a way out of it. They, they want bigger advances, more secure incomes. They want to know that sort of if book publishing falls down around their ears, that they'll still be okay, which is a perfectly normal and understandable kind of feeling. I think. Well, I think it's, it's probably more uh, these days with science fiction, apparently getting a smaller and smaller sliver of the overall market. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know what the figures are. I know that... You know, uh, 20 years ago, that the, the popular fiction market, uh, the genre fiction market, the science fiction was something like 15 or 20 percent. It's it's got to be much less than that now. It's been overwhelmed by fantasy. It's it's a distant distant uh, left in the dust by uh, romances, obviously. Sure, yeah. Uh, so there is a sense that uh, you know science fiction, which actually, to be honest, was nothing much more than a niche when it first started appearing on hardback in the early 50s, may have gone back to being that kind of a niche again, and maybe it's uh, uh, it's, 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 we're not going to see uh, very many more bestsellers showing up on uh, the New York Times um, bestseller list other than the occasional, um, I don't know, the, uh, uh, the, the Brandon Sanderson or the, uh, I think the last traditional mainstream science fiction writer to show up on the list may have been Anne McCaffrey. Yeah. Um, and of course, before that, all the Dunes. But those were, those were franchises. Those were not novels. Um, even when uh, back in the days when Arthur Clarke or Heinlein would regularly show up on uh, the list, it was essentially a extending franchises that already uh, that already yeah, established. Yeah. Um, so a brilliant science fiction novel, uh, and let's take one that. Um, well, let's take uh, since it's, I guess it's just coming out in the states now, uh, the the Quantum Thief yeah. by Ian Yemi. I don't see that ever showing up on anybody's best sellers, as no, much as I admire. No, no, but I, I guess the the point that I'd make there isn't. I don't think that the um, the Quantum Thief won't make a New York Times bestseller list because it's science fiction. I think the Quantum Thief by Hannah Ryan Yemi won't make the New York Times bestseller list because of the kind of complexity of book that it is. You know, I think, I think that, that's true. You know, I think that kind of a com complex story in any genre, will tend to struggle to appeal to as enormous a readership. Because what tends to happen, and this is just my observation, I, can, I profess no expertise in this, is that when you get to the books that sell at New York Times bestseller level, they're not, <clears throat> I'm really, I don't want to call them simpler, but certainly they don't have that kind of complexity to them. And I know that sort of sounds like I'm just finding another way to, to say the same thing. But I don't mean it that way. The, uh, the Ryan Yemi stuff is particularly... T tangled and complicated and detailed and intellectually challenging. And generally the bestsellers tend to be much more immediately approachable 
kind of books, much more immediately consumable kind of books, which is well, and understandable. Much more, and much more like, yeah, much more likely to reinforce uh, the predilections of a wider variety of readers. I mean, I've had you, you've probably heard me rant before as to why <coughs> science fiction writers shouldn't try to write thrillers. Mm, yeah, uh, because uh, because I think the movement of science fiction novels and the movement of most classical uh, James Bond type thrillers are exactly the opposite. And I'll explain that in a minute. But the main problem is, and, and, and I've said this in reviews, and I've said it to people I know who are friends like Greg Barron and Greg Benford. Uh, but those are two examples. Paul McCauley is an example. There are lots and lots of people who have written thrillers, and some of them are perfectly fine thrillers. Yeah. But essentially, the paranoid attitude that you need to get, the, 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 the kind of classic uh, Michael Crichton, Ludlam-esque structure of a thriller depends on being dumb. And science fiction writers can't bring themselves to be that dumb in terms of how they work out their plots or how their characters behave. See, I, I'd, be, I'd put it in a much kinder way, I think, Gary. I think that a, thr mm. a thriller is, ba isn't, is based upon being afraid of something, whereas mm. science fiction is about trying to understand something. You might be afraid as well, but you're trying to understand what is scaring you, whereas generally in a thriller you're trying to run away from it because it's bad. Or you're trying to contain it. Mm. And that's my basic argument, is that the, 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 the classic thriller, uh, and Michael Crichton may be the best example, sure. but, Ludlam, uh, but the James Bond novels. The, cla the movement of the classic thriller is that something really big is going to happen. Something science fictional is going to happen. Somebody has, uh, you know, cloned dinosaurs in uh, Costa mm -hmm. Rica, or, or they've uh, built nanobots and that sort of thing. The the suspense is how do we keep this from getting out? How do we contain this? How do we keep this discovery from meaning anything? Yes. Uh, uh, Michael Crichton's prey is exactly the inverse of. Uh, Greg Bear's blood music, because yes. the whole point of the Crichton, Crichton novel is that here's a scientific discovery which must must be suppressed because it's horrible. Yeah. And and Bear's instinctive way of dealing with it was, yeah, it's going to take over the world and everything's going to be different. Yes. Um, the, the 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 science fictional attitude is one of expansion, of one of change, and the thriller attitude is one of prevention of change. Yes. And we could sit there and, you know, sort of at a value judgment level, I guess, and say which makes which better, or, or, or how does that impact on how it sells to the world, you know? And certainly, mm -hmm. there's always that quandary which I see people in the science fiction community in, that starts with the we live in a science fictional world and yet we cannot sell science fiction. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a, the tendency to do this sort of well, we won, and irrespective of whether we won or whether we didn't, whether it was relevant or whether it wasn't, we live in a science fiction science fictional world, but we don't seem to be any more interested in the kind of questions that science fiction likes to raise. Um, until after the fact, and then they become yeah. kind of oddball marketing questions. I mean, I, I, I guess in a technical sense, we live in a in, in a William Gibson science fictional world way more than in a Greg Egan science fictional world. Yes. Yeah. Um, and where, where I think Gibson said at one point uh, that you know the future is here, it just isn't evenly distributed yet. Yeah. Um, and I, I could see that, I could see two aspects of that watching the news this afternoon because we're recording this the afternoon following this horrible yes. uh, earthquake and tsunami in, in Japan. And I'm looking at images that look like something out of a Roland Emmerich movie. And I'm thinking... That is spectacular. As, as awful as it is to watch, there's a part of you that thinks that is really spectacular. Mm, mm. And the other thing that was on the news immediately after that, because local news stations in the United States have no sense of proportion whatsoever, was a feature that gone, went on for about five minutes of a three-and-a-half-block-long line of people lined up around the Apple store. 
Mm. Uh, because the iPad went on sale at 6 p.m. tonight. Yes, and, and, and obviously the iPad and whether Lindsay Lohan go to, goes to jail is at least as important mm -hmm. as the fact that uh, Japan has been devastated by a terrible earthquake, is, is threatened by radiation leaks, there's a tsunami going across the mm -hmm. Pacific, and all this kind of actually devastating, serious stuff. Because news but is crazy. Thing, and but the, the kind of thing that's going on in Japan right now is the stuff of hundreds of disaster novels going back, uh, going back at least a century, I would think. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I have this pet theory that the, 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 the sort of one of the uh, archetypes of the disaster novel uh, is uh, Bulwer Lytton's *The Last Days of Pompeii*, yeah. uh, which is a classic. It's 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 a, it's a volcano. People being it's it's it's, it's all, all the elements are there, and and, and going back through. Of Fowler writes the deluge. All these sort of sort of end of the world novels. There are even whole histories of end of the world novels. We're familiar. That's a familiar kind of thing. We can say I understand what that is. If you look at, um, in other words, if you were to show the footage of 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 uh, the Japanese earthquake and tsunami to somebody 50 years ago, they would recognize it. They mm -hmm. would think it's amazing that people were able to take these photographs, but they would understand the nature of uh, of the disaster. If you were to show somebody from 20 or even 10 years ago, uh, a line of people staying up all night, sleeping out on the sidewalk in a Chicago <laughs> winter, so they can be the first ones in line to get an iPad too. That would make no sense to anyone. That's because it makes no sense to anyone now, Gary. That's nuts. Of course it's nuts, but that's that's the science, to me, that's the more science fictional aspect of the culture <laughs> we're living in. True. Uh, the fact true. that we are doing things, that, nobody to this day can really explain what an iPad is needed for. Uh, ah, and, now uh, that's why an iPad 2 is needed. That's interesting. I saw a thing about this just today, and it, it's how the, you know the iPad. If you look back at how it was originally being discussed before it first came out, you know the iPad One. There was all this thing that may not do very well. There's no real need for it, and there is no real need for it, right? There, there isn't. It doesn't fill some magical gap in anyone's life, and yet it no. feels right. The response is entirely emotional. It's a piece of technology you react to emotionally. It's cool. Mm -hmm. It's neat. I'm holding a movie in my hands. I can now, with this new one, apparently, I hold it up, and I have a great big camera viewfinder, and it can be the best ever video. It's like it's, it's like a 1968 video phone in your hands kind of thing, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's just neat and cool in all sorts of ways that make people want it irrationally. And it is, incidentally completely revolutionizing anything to do with media you know it's going to completely change what we do it's changing book distribution it's changing all kinds of other things and you know it could be devastating to the textbook industry really um, or, or it could be they need to adapt to it. yeah well actually, actually that was interesting i i did something interesting this morning gary and this we go oh did you jonathan yes i did do you know what i did mm -hmm. i found myself listening to what did you do? A publisher's conference that's being held at South by Southwest. You're familiar with South by Southwest? Mm -hmm. It's held in Austin every year. And Kirkus mm -hmm. uh, sponsored uh, it was four or five pa you know, panel items that they put up online as little sort of conference things. And they're talking about things like digitization of media, uh, self-publishing. Did you know that apparently there are approximately 790,000 self-published books released last year? Wow. I don't even know how they, they, they worked that out, but apparently there was that. Uh, did you know? Separate, separate titles. 790,000 individual self published book titles. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh, 
they you know they're talking about you know the um, the impact of iPad. It was interesting that people from Condonasta are there, right? Who are talking about um, the sale of magazines, and I at least was staggered. I thought magazines were dying, Gary. I was sure they were dying. People keep telling mm -hmm. me magazines are dying. Did you know that magazines, the total turnover for magazines is worth more than the total turn turnover for books or movies or games in the United States? Online magazines, online print, or both? Print and online magazines, magazines. Print magazines? Yeah. That's amazing. I thought they were, they were, they were supposed to be dead, I thought. But no, apparently they're flourishing. And apparently, you know, by the end of this year, I think every single Condé Nasta title is going to be on the iPad and everything else. They're mostly mm. on them now. And we still haven't... I mean, what's, what's happening is, it's interesting. Uh, this is a personal sort of observation, and I'd be interested if it applies to you. We're yet to get quite over an emotional problem to do with all of this. Um, I, I don't own an iPad right now, but I'll probably end up owning one. And at that point, I'm going to want to read The New Yorker on the iPad, right? Because I can get it right away. I mean, right now I get, in fact, mm -hmm. we have a great example. I get Locus, as the digital edition of Locus, every month. And I get it about right. 95 seconds after it's released, which is the best thing ever. No longer does it have to be mailed to me across the world. No longer do I get you know, news that's three weeks out of date. It's all instant and fresh, and we're all part of the, the same community. And because some of us are on Twitter, we're all Twittering about reading the new Locus and all that kind of thing. Mm. Awesome source. It's great. And I can read it on the iPad, and from what I've seen, it looks fantastic on the iPad. Um, all magazines are going to have to adapt to this and be part of it, and then they get rejuvenated by it. They, I mean, suddenly magazine. I mean, the thing we have to get over, though, is the price point. I mean, if you want right now, if you want to buy... The New York Times, it costs exactly mm. the same price for um, an iPad copy as it does for a print copy. And that feels a bit wrong, you know. And it's interesting as well. Do you know what the two most popular, most successful price points are for ebooks in the world? $2.99? And 99 cents. The, the, all the best sellers are, are either 99 cents or $2.99, apparently, which I did not know. And in fact, you're talking about um, Amanda Hawking. Amanda Hawking. And how much do her books sell for? $2.99. Yeah, some of them uh, are $1.99, some of them are $2.99. She is making, as she has pointed out, other people have pointed out, she herself is making as much per copy as if these were published by a commercial publisher. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and no one, and, and somebody pointed out, no publisher in the world could offer her a better deal than she's gotten. She, um, she, I was fascinated because I just discovered her in the past week. I gather she's kind of a legend, and obviously an anomaly, but um, apparently the figures... Uh, starting in April 2000, 2010, she'd sold 185,000 copies of her eight or nine books. Yeah. Uh, by the in, in January of this year alone, she sold another 450,000. Mm -hmm. And at this point, she's at something like 900,000 copies of books. Um, and staggering. At, at, at that point, it's 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 insane. What was interesting to me though is to to look at her blog, and she sounds like a very bright young lady. Mm -hmm. um, she was not claiming that, aha, look at me, I've really stuck it to the big New York publishers. She was basically saying um, very few books were going to be as successful as mine were Sure. in the first place. And the other thing is she's kind of complaining. She was complaining almost that there were things that she had to do that would be done for her yeah. uh, if she were working with a commercial press. For example, yeah. she's complaining that she hasn't got time to write her books anymore because in order to pump up yeah. these sales, She's constantly blogging and Twittering and Facebooking and emailing, and uh, she has to do all the publicity herself. 
which is enormously time consuming. She, she said, you don't have any idea how much work goes into this kind of thing. The second thing, which I thought was very interesting, was that even though she, like most amateur writers I know, have a group of friends that they'll, I've done this for friends of mine for that matter, uh, they'll have them look at it and, mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. proofread it. And, and she said that no matter how many people she has to do it, she can't get a good professional editor to do the kind of work they would do with a published book. And she still sees flaws that have gotten through all her readers. In other words, she's saying the problem with self-publishing is that if you're a serious about if you're serious about writing, as she apparently is, you begin to realize you need an editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the services of a good editor are yes. Uh, it could be that editors will become freelance editors from. Well, actually, uh, they, they talked. Them, they talked about this at the yeah. South by Southwest thing, and someone was saying that you know the two most critical things you should be investing in if you're self-publishing, and I can't believe that we'd ever reach a point where we would talk about encouraging people to self-publish, but the two things you need are professional editorial help and professional cover work. Those two things. Yeah. And those are the two things that you always see and recoil from. I mean, I have to say, I I don't know, you, you, you will recall Linda Nagata, who had uh, oh, a, a bunch of books yeah. out, out from, I think, uh, Bantam originally and then from Tor. Uh, she had a new novel out last year, which we were unaware of, a young adult science fiction novel, which she self-published through her own Mythic Islands Press. Which didn't have such. I, mean, I saw it just this, yesterday, and it didn't have, uh, online on her website. And it didn't have such fantastic cover art, and I could see you looking at it thinking, if I didn't know Linda Nagata's name, I wouldn't think this is a particularly professional product. And this is the kind of issue you come up against. And she has her first mm-hmm. epic fantasy novel that she's going to again self-publish through Mythic Islands Press. And you know, I wish her every success. But you're looking to going. Well, you're going to have to get better cover art and stuff because even though it sits on my Kindle, because I'm going to buy it as an ebook, say. I want to feel as though it's professional. And I think that's what happens with a lot of people. Uh, because, I mean, most people don't know whether Mythic Islands Press is a, an enormous, great business or whether it's one right. person in Hawaii, which it is. Um, you want to think that, the, that, that all the stuff that surrounds the, the text is professional so that, ergo, that the stuff that's inside is of the same kind of level of quality as well. That's what you're hoping for. And that, I think that's what you see missing with a lot of the, a lot of the self-published stuff and what tends to flag it up front as being suspect, I think. It's true, but on the other hand, you can have, and this goes back to the days of print self-publishing, um, you, can, you can have a very expensively sure. done book, which is basically a piece of crap, because mm-hmm. the, the author, uh, there's one I'm thinking of in particular, uh, and I'm not thinking, the, the, the guy who wrote it was actually was a publicist in Hollywood, and uh, he knew how to put together an attractive book. Yeah. The novel itself wasn't that great, but he actually did fairly well on it based on nothing but uh, a couple of blurbs from friends of his, a very mm-hmm. well-designed cover, and a nice layout. Yeah. It looked like a real book. Um, I, I think you're right. I don't think that uh, in, in the long run we're going to necessarily encourage people to do self-publishing, but I think that what a lot of this is revealing is that the uh, when, I, when I talk to writers who are just <clears throat> constantly hearing you know, more science and science, uh, the, the, that they're never going to be able to make a living again, Sure. Um, all of the professional, I mean, all of the, uh, let me say, creative, uh, highly skilled aspects of publishing are still in demand. As you say, a good cover, yep. a decent layout. As our friend Cheryl Morgan pointed out, one of the flaws with the Kindle right now is that every book looks like every other book. They, they won't support a lot of different creative sure. type sure. pieces. But if you, could, if you can do that, if you can, uh, if, if you can get a good design cover, that means that cover artists are still in demand. It's clear that good editors are still in demand. Good publicists are still in demand. What's not really in demand is the corporate structure of publishing. Yeah. 
And that may be what's in danger. Well, it very much is, though. I mean, yes and no, because what I've been thinking for a while and what was on my mind while you were just talking about that is that there is there's, there are a plethora of, of titles that are going to be self-published, and particularly self-published digitally. We'll see more uh, digital magazines. We'll see more digital books. We'll see more varieties of digital book, without a doubt. But what is the... What is the, the the stream that will no no how to put this how do we gatekeep it to know that they're legitimate you know, how do we not know how does a reader who has I mean isn't looking for stuff that is um, necessarily approved by anybody or seen as being part of any canon they just want some kind of idea that this is legitimate right how do we mm. get legitimate new channels I mean right now we have legitimate channels when it comes to books and magazines and fiction. Uh, you know, right. if, if, if the book is in a, a bookstore, whether it was self-published or not, it gets some kind of legitimacy. If it's in a big chain bookstore, it gets a different kind of legitimacy. If it's, if your story is in a magazine that's distributed nationally, it gets a different kind of legitimacy. The channel legitimizes the content to some degree. Now, and what's happening is we're, t those, uh, channels are being torn down. You can see it with with, the, with what's happening in book publishing or book, book selling. Sorry, even though bookstores will obviously continue to my mind, um, though in a different form. How do we build up these new channels? I mean, and I mean, I was thinking about again this this morning, just just from a pure locus point of view, right? Once upon a time mm -hmm. in 2007, if I had said to Charles Brown, "We're going to have to cover self-published books," or more to the point, if I'd said there are 790,000 self-published books published, Charles, do you think any of them are any good? He would have probably have shaked in his head, laughed and said, no, we don't need to look at any of those. But it's no longer right. true. It's no longer true. I think that, yeah, that's the I think, thing. I think you're right, Nate. And how do um, we, well, I think, as the potential gatekeepers, build up a strategy as well so that we're capturing what's good out of that to bring it to the attention of our readers because that's what they're looking to us to do. Yeah, I don't like to think of myself as a gatekeeper. I'd, I'd rather think of myself as a discoverer. Sure. Um, and, uh, and and when you're getting a book, uh, here, here's a good example. I mean, uh, when I got the, the um, advanced reading copy of Karen Lord's Redemption in Indigo from Small Beer, they may have done a more complete arc at some point. What I got was a completely blank, uh, you know, a, a typographical cover. It said Redemption in Indigo, Karen Lord. The only thing it was I knew it was from Small Beer Press. Yeah. And I knew that that was that they do interesting things. That was, yeah. But 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 essentially, apart from that, it's simply a matter of a uh, 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 flying blind. Uh, the the legitimacy of that book came from nothing but the name of the publisher. Um, it could easily have been a self-published book. Would sure. I have read it if it's a self-published book? Probably not. But uh, the, when I say the sense about being a discoverer than a gatekeeper. Uh, it's a great feeling to come across a book like that and realize I've never heard of this person. I've oh, absolutely. Never heard of this book. I don't know anything about it. And the question is, um, okay, small beer is, 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 is a name. If you have no name attached to it at all, and there are thousands of these things, mm. how do you even begin to find one? I, I, I'll be honest. I don't know. This is why I'm casting around talking about strategies. I mean, obviously, you listen to what's being said and you try and keep track of things. And it's 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 easy enough to say, okay, Linda Nagata now self-publishes her books, right? And mm -hmm. we don't live in an era where we sort of point and snicker because she's self-publishing. We sit there and go, well, Linda Nagata wrote The Boar Maker, which is an interesting book. There's a reasonably good chance Linda Nagata will write an interesting book. How do we, you know, we have to pay attention right. to that. And there will be 
myriad other examples, I'm sure. But I mean, there's all this stuff we're going to miss. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure yet how we develop a strategy for, for dealing with this, for highlighting stuff, for knowing that this actually is going to be worth it. Particularly when, when my guess is that of the 790,000 self-published books of 2010 estimated, 790,000 of them weren't worth reading. Probably 770,000 of them definitely weren't reading. And of the remaining 20,000, probably, yeah, not many of those are worth reading either, is my guess. But who knows? Well, I and mean, what, what will eventually happen, I suspect, or I hope, is that uh, there will emerge some channels for uh, for gatekeeping. Like I say, I don't think gatekeeping is what, what no. we necessarily do when we write reviews. I do think it's what publishers do when they select things. Yeah, yeah. So to some extent, maybe people will begin to acquire books for online publishing that will give some kind of an imprimatur sure. that at least tells us this book has been read by somebody else. Here's a good example of it. It's, sure. it's not exactly parallel, but I think it's interesting parallel. Uh, I never read a lot of fanzines. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. I don't think I ever read any. I, later, I would go to libraries, the few libraries that collect them, like Riverside or, or, or sure, uh, sure. Liverpool, and look at old fanzines. And they were appalling, frankly. <laughs> I mean, uh, prior to the the, 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 the the classic old hectograph, they were they were like personal hate letters written to each other. <laughs> They're amusing now because you see these cranky letters written by people like, you know, H.P. Lovecraft. Sure, sure. Uh, but uh, but arguably, the web has vastly improved the quality of what we now think of as fanzines mm-hmm. and semi-prosines. And one of the reasons it's done that is it's permitted some of these to develop the con- a continuity, a kind of brand name, so that you know that you can expect some reliable uh, material. You can expect a lot of reliable material from a Clark's World or a Strange oh, yeah. Horizons. Though in fairness, um, I mean, they're not fanzines. Well, they're not fanzines anymore. Uh, well, Clark's World but, never was. And I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that Strange Horizons was either. I think if you go back, Strange Horizons was a genuine semi-pro. I'm, I'm, I'm quibbling here with you, Gary. Strange mm-hmm. Horizons was a genuine semi-prosine, I think, and so was Clark's World. And I don't mean it in any disparagement for to fanzines, but I'm pretty sure Strange Horizons was paying from the outset, and so was Clark's World. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. uh, so so it, we wouldn't want to equate an online magazine with fanzine. I think. Starship Sofa was very much a fanzine. It's all done okay, that's a good on paid and all that kind of stuff. And I think you can see other things around. I think, definitionally or, or otherwise, what we're doing is a fanzine. What Galactic yes. Suburbia is doing is a fanzine. Um, you know, so, so there's uh, SF Signal in some ways, I think, actually. Okay, SF Signal might be a better example of what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Uh, the, the main point, and I'm sure that there are lots of cranky, obsessive, uh, you know, lone guy in the basement <laughs> fanzine still being produced out there. I'm sure, yeah. That we never see. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, probably interesting stuff in there. Probably interesting stuff. There may be interesting stuff. I mean, one, 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 one person who has uh, made the transition very smoothly is Dave Langford. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I read Ansible every month, and most, mm-hmm. of, what's, most of what I read in Ansible uh, isn't terribly new to me, but it has a personality. It has yep. very funny sure. things that David does. Um, and I used to read print copies of Ansible, and now I just, you know, pick up the email copy. And I think uh, it, it arguably is probably more influential now, or at least more widely read now than it's ever been. Hey, I've got a question for you. Do, mm-hmm. if, for, for it to be a fanzine or fan writing, does it have to be unpaid? Does it have to be, pardon? Unpaid. Uh, uh, okay, uh, Cheryl, you have to tell us what the rules are here. 
Um, I, I believe it's supposed to be unpaid. I believe. No, um, I, ju- I just realized. I mean, I was I was thinking quite. You know, I'm sitting here thinking of my response to come back at you with because we're having this back and forth stuff, and I was thinking, who's my favorite fan writer of the day? Right, my favorite fan writer of the day is Joe Walton. Love Joe Walton. Okay. Love the stuff she writes for Tor.com. Right. She does all these things. She's doing these uh, series of posts on past Hugo winners, which I really enjoy. I like her reviews for tour, da-da-da-da-da. They're all paid for. All of them. Mm-hmm. So, um, you, tour pays you, I mean, it may, it may only be like 10 bucks a post or something, but they pay you. And so, is any of it fan writing? For well, the purposes of the Hugos? Um. I, I, again, I, I have to defer to Cheryl on that. I mean, one of the things that's uh, interesting me a long time uh, has been the the professional versus non-professional categories in the World Fantasy Awards. Sure. And and the non-professional doesn't mean you don't get paid. It means you don't get most of your income from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, is one of the more, more bizarre criteria for an award I've ever heard of. <laughs> uh, well, particularly but, since uh, most people don't know. <laughs> well, maybe that's it. Uh, but I mean, the the point with with Joe Walton, I don't I don't know the financial situations of different writers out there. But my guess is that ten bucks a post, you're not making a living at that. Yeah, uh, yeah. It would not put oh, you no. in the professional category. Lord, no. well, publishing. True, true. So, so to some extent, I mean, informally, the way I would think of a fanzine, apart from whatever the Hugo rules would say, is that somebody does this because they want to do it. They might be nice to get paid by, uh, for it, uh, but you're never going to make a living at it. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, I've got a clarification. That... Cheryl, please put down your tools. The Hugo rules say <laughs> the best fan writer, right, does not just apply to writing done in fanzines. Works applied published in semi zines, on mailing lists, blogs, BBSs, electronic form can be included. Only work in professional publications should not be considered. There is no payment factor. So Joe, Joe is eligible, and so she is now my favorite fan writer. There we go. Excellent. Don't you love the internet? Ah, well, it's, uh, it, it fascinates me that uh, you have always had um, some of the major writing about science fiction taking place outside of professional venues yeah, uh, yeah. or on the margins of professional venues. Sure, I mean, very much. We've talked before, some of the, cer- certainly the, the two, two of the seminal uh, collections of critical essays about science fiction are uh, those by James Blish or William Affling and, uh, and Damon Knight's In Search of Wonder, which began either in fanzines or in pulp magazines, yeah. and by modern standards wouldn't be considered professional writing at all. We're doing a panel. I'll be going to ICFA uh, I was gonna uh, about ask a week about from today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Please tell and, me all about uh, it. Sidney Duncan. Yeah. Well, it's, it'll, it'll be fascinating. Um, we're going to uh, be interviewing a bunch of people. I'll be meeting uh, Karen Lord in person for the first time. Yeah. And uh, one of the panels that got organized by um, our vice president, Sidney Duncan, yeah. uh, who is married to Andy Duncan, who may be more familiar to more people, um, she put together a panel called Professionals Writing, and okay. I, I agreed to be on it. I agreed to chair it, in fact. And Liza Trombi, Liza Groen Trombi is on it. Michael Durda is on it. Uh, I think Graham Slight is on it. Um, I'm not sure who else. Maybe Ted Chang mm-hmm. um, and Nalo uh, Hopkinson. And so I, n- none of us knew exactly what this was about, so I emailed uh, Sydney, and her idea was very interesting, and I like, I'm looking forward to the panel now. This is an academic convention where yes. a lot of the majority of the convention are formal papers done by people who are either graduate students or young professors or assistant professors uh, doing scholarly papers on work. And there are, there are panel discussions as well. Yep. Uh, 
But there are a lot of writers and editors and publishers who show up at this. Uh, I believe Tom Doherty is coming this year. The purpose of this panel, Sydney explained to me, was to let the uh, a lot of the people in the academic audience realize that some of the most important writing about science fiction that's being done is being done by people who are not affiliated with institutions. Yeah. Um, who are Gra- Graham Slide is a perfectly good example of this. Yep. Um, Michael Durda is maybe not because he's a Pulitzer Prize winning, but, <laughs> but nevertheless he's he's outside of academia. He's certainly highly visible. He is. And I think that becomes an important panel simply because of an issue which may only apply to those of us who are involved with the academic study of science fiction, but it's something John Clute and I have talked about a lot, that this massive body of really intelligent writing about science fiction, mm-hmm. of which one of the most recent examples are Joe Walton's uh, columns, uh, tends not to be visible to uh, to people who believe that they're trying to keep up with criticism and scholarship in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, so, some of the most interesting scholarship is published in what amounts to fanzines yes, or, or semi-prosines. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and that sort of thing is uh, not well organized and, and, and not accessible and is invisible to a huge chunk of people. It, the, the reason I am ranting about it is because it's driven Cluton. Mm-hmm. Well, here, here's a good example because yeah. I, I can find examples of this from my own writing. I can certainly find examples of it from, uh, from Clute's writing. You will listen to or read an academic paper written by a uh, very uh, yep. ambitious, uh, meticulous professor, uh, which, draw, which draws as its conclusion um, about a novel. Let's say it's uh, just picking it out of the air. Let's say it's Perdido Street Station or something. Sure, sure, sure. And those of us who are familiar with sort of the living part of the field, that is the, the, the field as it's lived day to day, are aware of the fact that the brilliant conclusion that this article builds toward was in fact noted in almost all the reviews of the book when it came out. It's <laughs> yeah. not news to anyone. No, no, no. i got a question for you. They call it the International Conference mm-hmm. on the Fantastic and the Arts, and they go to what looks yeah. like a somewhat sun-faded hotel in the outskirts of Florida somewhere, right? Um, it's, a well, can, this... it's, a con, it's a con, though, isn't it? I was looking at the program. The program's online now. I mean, you've got like a Doctor Who panel. There's a Doctor Who panel. There's a Harry Potter panel. It's a con. Do they dress up? Oh, it's a con. It's absolutely a con. Um, uh, one of the things which fascinates me is to watch how the uh, interests of the academic side of the field sort of shadow the interests of the con side of the field. Mm-hmm. I suspect most of the people doing papers on Doctor Who uh, may never have been to a Doctor Who convention. Well, um, Sidney Duncan. Well, okay, that's different then. Uh, <laughs> but by and large... There is a sense that, um, and it's an, it's an issue in uh, all the discussions about science fiction and, and fantasy these days, uh, there is a, a, le- a legitimate and very large subset of this whole world which deals with media, which will deal mm-hmm. with Doctor Who, which will deal with Joss Whedon, uh, which will deal, I'm sure Christopher yeah. Nolan will come around sure. uh, at some point in having papers done on him. Uh, and it's, um, I, I have no problem with that. It's not yeah. necessarily something that I find parallel at all to what I read. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, I think generally uh, uh, when you go to uh, world cons and add up, which I used to do, yeah. the number of panels that deal with fandom, the number of panels that deal, by, by fandom I mean all the things that deal from costuming, filking, fan organizing, and that sort of thing, then add up the panels that deal with uh, TV or media or gaming um, and Pretty soon you realize that the third or fourth largest section of 
programming is actually about fiction. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't bother me a lot uh, because what happens in world cons, and I think we may have mentioned this on one of these forty or fifty podcasts we've done already, <laughs> is that they work because everybody finds their subcon in it. Uh, yeah, that's true. Nobody can re- nobody can really grasp the totality of a large world con. I don't know what the one in Australia was like, but the last one I went to uh, was in Denver, or Montreal, I guess. And, and and they were very large. And in every case, you find yourself um, in a sea of four or five thousand people talking to the same thirty or forty people. Yeah, that's I because they're in the areas that you're interested in. Yes, yes. I think I need you to get you. I'm looking at as I say the program item. I I think I need to get you to do something for me. What would that be? Well, the first thing is, I mean, obviously, you know, because I'm, I am impoverished, a father of children, and I can't travel to America a hundred times, I will not be in Florida. I had serious pangs about this this week, Gary, serious pangs, but I yeah, won't be yeah, there. And, 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 and depriving your children from Harry Potter land, that's fine. They'll oh, fine. oh, you are evil and have a dark heart. <laughs> oh, I like you 14.5% less than I did a minute ago. What a thing to say. Okay, I want you to record... Panel item 77 for me. And that would be? Ellen Clagis and Andy Duncan reading. That will be wonderful. Um, that is a story that they've been collaborating on, and uh, I've, I think it's okay to say I've read Ellen's half of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be wonderful. It's, um, I've, Andy has finished his half. I, they can't read the whole thing. It's going to be a novella-length story. Okay. But uh, I think it'll be absolutely fascinating, and um, it'll be interesting to see how these two things work. Now, now of course, as, uh, as part of the, the Gary K. Wolf 65th birthday celebrations, are you going to be recording at Ickford at all for us, Gary? We need to talk about this. Uh, here, here, we'll just do some of our uh, podcast business while people can listen to us. Next <laughs> Friday, week from tonight, I will, in fact, be in Orlando, Florida, uh, with uh, my microphone and stuff, and we will try to figure out a time when we can get together and see who's yep. there. I could probably get Ellen and Andy to talk about their story on our podcast, but I don't want to promise anything because no, no. I don't know who's going to be what when. Yeah, and I imagine as well you'll be caught up with Locust Business as well as ICFA Business and all that. Well, that's what I need to do is find out what my schedule is, when I'm going to be free. Sure, sure. Uh, the thing that I do like about this conference is that it's um, – it's at a hotel which has a very nice tiki bar out by the pool area, <laughs> by Mai Tais, and sit there as long as you want to, and occasionally wander in and maybe listen to a panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the people that uh, tend to be around, I mean, they, our guests of honor this year are Connie Willis and Terry Bisson, yeah. who are just two of the most delightful people to talk to in the world, yeah. um, and yet in very different ways. Sure. Um, so I think that um, the the conference itself, if we can get the ambience of it at all, uh, would be great to try to record something at. Cool. And also this is, but the, the other thing that people need to, uh, I'm, I'm plugging the conference a little bit, although the conference can't get too large, mm-hmm. uh, it, it can only go to about 300 people because of the size of the breakout rooms in the hotel and that sort of thing. But that creates a real sense of intimacy that you don't get in a conference that goes sure, even to sure. a thousand people. Yeah, or, or World Fantasy, which has obviously closed itself off this year and you can't go to if you right. don't have them. I've got a, a scary question that just occurred to me about Ickford, though, Gary. Here I am. I'm pining for those Floridian fjords, and we all know about Floridian fjords. Yes. I've been to science fiction conventions, Gary. How different is Ickford from other science fiction conventions? Because I'm not sure whether I'm ready for the swimsuit science fiction convention in, you know, intersection just yet. 
Um, I think you're you're clearly ready for it. Although it, <laughs> it, it means it means nothing to you to go to a, a warm climate in, in March. I realize that. Um, but the the sense of um, a, a large party of mostly your own friends uh, is, is what you get at this. The the only convention I can compare to ICFA is ReaderCon. Uh, because it's very small, it's a single hotel. It's a, it's basically I don't know how large it is, but it seems like a few hundred people. Yeah, and you spend a lot of time drinking. Um, well, that, that uh, is my skill set. Um, yes, so I I think we're there. They they certainly know how to make sea breezes in Florida. Oh, awesome! By the way, it occurs to me while we're chatting, and we're now in the the loose rambly bit before we say that's the end of it, mm-hmm. I guess. And that is there's something we did last week that we probably have to stick our hands up and say a bit of mea culpa for Gary. Okay. And, we were talking about the Clark Award and what a nifty and interesting ballad it was, as you'll recall. Mm-hmm. And we then talked about all of those books which were missing from the ballot and might possibly have been on the ballot had the ballot perhaps followed more expected lines. Yes, you recall this conversation? Mm-hmm. I remember it very well. Every book we proposed was by a man, Gary. Really? Yeah. We get a fail. Hmm. So just just so we, we need to be aware of this thing, I want to acknowledge it here. I'm not going to, don't want to make a big deal about it, but I did just want to acknowledge and say that, yes, in retrospect, I look back and I can see that there are certainly other books we could equally have named uh, which would have been more diverse and that that was a, an oversight in our, our behalf, even if it was unintentional. So. Yeah, one of the things that confuses me about this is, is this date of publication in England. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, might include all kinds of books that we're both unaware of. Sure. Um, I mean, for example, Connie Willis's novel won't be out in England, maybe not even this year. If uh, ever. I don't know what to do. If, if, if ever. There's a possibility it will be. Hmm. Um, the, the Joe Walton, among others, which I still think, for, for a book as early as it came out this year, mm-hmm. that's not out in England. certainly was not out last year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't know if that's coming out this year or not either. It certainly should be coming out in England, so very English yeah. book. But yeah, I think it's one of those things when you start naming names and then uh, what comes to mind is what comes to mind. Yes. Okay. Well, I think on that note, Gary, we can say episode 42 is pretty much done. That we'll make a few little plans after we sign off for episode 43, live from ICFA maybe, or with ICFA bits at least. Uh, I'll also note that even though it was number 42, we did fail to touch on life, the universe, or everything, or provide any meaning for it. But that's what happens on a Cood Street podcast, I guess. Uh, episode 50 will take care of life, life, the universe, and everything. People can look forward to that. Be careful. You know, episode 50, just nine episodes away, is also dun, 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 our first anniversary podcast. They coincide just well, about exactly. Oh, I, well... We've been doing them weekly. There are 52 weeks in a year. We could have figured that out. Well, can I also say we did actually – I thought it would have been podcast 52. But see, there's a, couple, there's a couple that we don't count. They're not, they don't have episode numbers. Maybe I should go back and renumber all the, the, pod, the episodes. But that just sounds like too much trouble. You know, there's the Australia Day podcast and the Boxing Day podcast and right. the Live from World Fantasy podcasts. And the podcast when you were off in New Orleans at Neil Gaiman's party with your friends because you're like that. And I chatted with Tansy podcast. Um, and right. I didn't put – so there's probably like another four or five actually in the mix. 
we've actually probably done somewhere closer to 46 or 47 right now. But on the what is now currently the official numbering that I can't be bothered going back to change. Well, let's, this is 42. let's, let's keep with our official numbering and um, and we will then um, have our 50th have our first anniversary podcast one way or the other. It will be on the on the 8th of May is the, is the anniversary. That's when our first podcast went live to the world. And on that cheery, happy note, and without any mention of the weather, it's been good talking to you, Gary. At all. At all. Good well, to talk almost. to you. Okay, take care. We'll see what happens. Okay, okay, you too. Okay, bye. Goodbye.